0: It's the 22nd of October, 2021. This is a Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, sometimes I get on here, it seems like he's just moaning and griping and he's got an issue. And you know, today I just have a few questions. Pretty simple, straight up. Is tramadol really a weak narcotic? Should we really still be doing placebo controlled trials? And what are we going to do about our patients who are smokers? Which patient characteristics do you rely on to inform your choice of treatment? An exploratory study that looked at arensia, abatacept, and a TNF inhibitor may provide some insights. Don't treat in the dark. Visit arensiadata.com. So let's start with a study of placebos and what's happened to placebos in patients taking Placebos against an active drug for psoriatic arthritis. You know, a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, when the ACR-20 was applied to PSA trials, they had single-digit placebo response rates like 6%, 5%, 7%. You know, and for me, that was validation that the ACR-20 was a good measure for PSA when, in fact, it was devised for RA. But you know what's happened over time? It has been some placebo response rate creep. No, they're not creeps. The rates are gone up over time, and so this particular study looked at um, a pooled analysis of forty-two trials, um, and showed that over time that there has been an increase in the placebo response rate. It's um, now, I think, at twenty point three percent. I think is the pooled average right now, but. In the last five years, it's gone up roughly about 15% a year. The interesting thing here, however, is it hasn't affected the drug effect or the treatment effect. Treatment effect is the response to the drug under study minus the placebo response. That's the treatment effect or drug effect. The treatment effect and drug effects have remained sort of constant. So that means that as the placebo response rate goes up, so does the uh, response to the drug. Again, placebos are wonderful drugs if only we could harness how we could um <laughs> use those in our practice and and tell patients you're getting a placebo and see what, see if they get better. Um I found an interesting comparison of the drug safety comparing two narcotics. I use a lot of tramadol. I use a little bit of codeine. I don't use any hydrocodone anymore. Um, oddly, when I send patients who need stronger medicines to pain docs, they don't give them the strong medicines they need. They want to do procedures. They want to. It's kind of a mess, honestly. Pain management really is a bit of a mess. Uh, congratulations to any of you who are taking this head on. But in this particular study, it's a, a it's a drug it's a safety comparison of a very large cohort. I, w- I want to say there's like a hundred thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients in this thing. And straight up, when they got, actually it was 115,000 match propensity scored uh, cohorts, tramadol and codeine. And head to head, tramadol had significantly more, significantly higher risk of all-cause mortality. 2.31 hazard ratio. Wow. A higher risk of cardiovascular events, a 15% higher risk, a hazard ratio of one15 and a significantly higher risk of fractures, 1.50 hazard ratio. No differences in falls, delirium, constipation, opioid abuse, uh, sleep disorders. But you know, uh, I tend—I always say that you know tramadol is a weak narcotic. Um, don't worry about it. Well, this kind of data makes me makes me worry about it. It makes me worry about whether it is safe to use this drug in patients who need it for pain. Again, if you had another option, this might not be a a tough discussion. But since we don't have many options, it's a tough discussion. Um, Medscape had a nice uh, review of an article about lupus patients taking um, aspirin, and that aspirin significantly lowered the risk of preeclampsia, a major problem with uh, lupus patients who become pregnant. Interestingly, not only did aspirin lower the risk of preeclampsia, so did hydroxychloroquine. The risk factors for getting preeclampsia in their study was high disease activity during the first trimester, odds ratio of 4.5, BMI greater than 30, odds ratio 6.1, antiphospholipid syndrome, odds ratio 8, and history of prior preeclampsia, guess what, you're going to get it again, um, an odds ratio of about 10. Uh, so yes, your patients, lupus patients, probably should be on aspirin during their pregnancy. Um, not after week 30 five right that's when there's any non-steroidal or aspirin could contribute to pre- premature closure of the ductus arteriosus cause fetal distress you don't want to do that the recovery study in the uk looked at a match cohort comparison of, of colchicine patients there's a lot of patients in the study again big numbers um colchicine versus placebo both groups got usual care we have reported previously that it looked like colchicine probably had some protective effect This very large study um, shows no effect. No effect on 28-day mortality, 21%. No effect on mechanical ventilation or death, 25% in both groups. Time to discontinuation, a mean of 10 days in both groups. The number of patients who were discharged from the hospital week at day 28 alive was 70% in both treatment groups. Doesn't look like colchicine really does have much of an effect. So congratulations to the ULAR guidelines who said there's not enough data or robust data to include it or to recommend it. You know, um, I'm not sure if you're getting these arguments. I'm getting a lot of arguments and discussions these days about, you know, are we close to herd immunity? What is herd immunity? You know, how many people do we have to get vaccinated? Can we be running around without masks? It's a really, it's, 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 the numbers are hard to follow here. JAMA had an interesting report this week where they looked at like 1.5 million blood donor specimens from around the country representing about three-quarters of the country. And they had a lot of statistics about seroprevalence and whatnot, but the combined infection seroconversion and vaccination seroconversion as of May 2021 was 83.3%. So we're obviously not in herd immunity and we've got 83% of people somewhat protected. The problem with infection seroprevalence and seroconversion is it doesn't last. And that's why patients who get infected need to be revaccinated or vaccinated um, at least, um, you know, there's some argument about the 60 or 90 days after the infection resolves. But we're getting closer. You know, we need another 30, 40 million people in the United States to be vaccinated. Um, you know, early on, we were talking about herd immunity and what it was going to take, and no one really knew a number. Some were throwing out 70%, some were saying 80%. Fauci and those people who are supposed to be the experts weren't being pinned down because they correctly pointed out that we don't know the number. The number is different for different bugs. And, and this bug has had different levels of virulence, uh, now with the Delta variant being the most virulent. So it's, as long as there's a reservoir for this bug to land, it's going to be hard to achieve herd immunity. So I'm guessing we got to be over 90% vaccinated and, and or infected um, to get there. So, again, keep up the effort and get everybody vaccinated. And as we o- always said, mask up, back up, wash up. Um, head-to-head, which is a better drug in psoriatic arthritis? Eustekinamab or a TNF inhibitor. Used a lot of TNF inhibitors. I don't know if you've gone to Eustekinamab, the IL-1223 inhibitor. Very effective, in my opinion. But head-to-head, real-world study, uh, almost 900 patients. Uh, if you looked at minimal disease activity, it was 26% with Eustekinamab, 31% with TNF inhibitors. Uh, if you looked at CDAPSA, uh, Joseph Smolin, uh, popular psoriatic arthritis, uh, skin and joint outcome deal. 15% with ustekinamab, 19% with uh, TNF inhibitors. The edge goes to TNF inhibitors, but ustekinamab, not far behind. Um, Again, those were not statistically different, numerically different, maybe. The FDA approved this week another adalimumab biosimilar. Actually, they've already approved this biosimilar. Siltizo. Siltizo, this comes from Beringer Ingelheim. It was actually approved um, two years ago, I think, but it's now the first biosimilar, TNF inhibitor biosimilar, that is interchangeable. And I, I, you may have followed this a, l- a few years ago. We were talking about interchangeability. They're working on a guidance document. And this, what this means now, the drug's already been approved as biosimilar. Now it's approved as to be interchangeable with the original compound, at Humira adalimumab. Uh, and that means that the pharmacy or your hospital system and make the substitution without notifying you, and that it has met that criteria. We don't have a lot of biosimilar use in the United States, but this is, uh, I think, gets under the doctor's skin quite a bit when um, your ability to control the prescriptions is taken away from you, uh, and the decision is made by money. Again, I do believe biosimilars are effective. I'm not wild about this interchangeable rule. Um, smoking impairs methotrexate efficacy. We reported that this week. I don't know if that surprises you. We know smoking's bad for RA. We know smoking's bad for everything. Last week, we said smoking's bad for Stills disease. It's bad for lupus, JIA, spondylitis, et cetera. But in this particular study, these are the results of the CAMERA 2 study. It was an early RA. CAMERA was a computer-assisted treat-to-target um, uh, study. Uh, patients with early RA starting on either methotrexate with or without 10 milligrams of prednisone. And the treat the target part was escalation of methotrexate dose. When they looked at patients in the study who were treated with methotrexate, either with or without prednisone, what they found that that being a a current smoker was associated with a higher Dash twenty eight over time, um, and that prednisone didn't factor into this in any way. Overall, current smoking um, lowered your risk of uh, or increased your lowered your risk of having Disease control by forty-three percent. So again, not very good. Um, uh, What are we doing about this? I mean, I'm not sure what you do. You know, when I see a patient who smells of tobacco, who's got cigarette stains on their fingers from tobacco, who freely admits the tobacco, they usually get like the the four-minute lecture about this is like gasoline on the fire, and this is something that they can control and all the drugs in the world may not be enough to control their disease. But maybe we need to go further. You know, some rheumatologists have smoking cessation clinics within their own operation. Um, Maybe you should double down on this whole issue and say, well, I'm really worried about your lungs and your heart. I'm getting a chest x-ray. I'm getting a, a calcium score by chest CT. I'm getting PFTs. I'm sending you to the pulmonary doctor. If you want to continue to be a smoker, you got to hear it from the people who are also going to tell you about how this is slowly killing you. I'm going to tell you how RA is going to slowly kill you because you're not stopping the thing that you should stop. And again, I have to recognize that it is incredibly difficult to stop. The basic rules here are that uh, success rates are highest when patients join a smoking cessation group like SmokeEnders. use m- medicinal help you know drugs that can help them beat the habit in the first 12 weeks um and probably getting the support and encouragement of their doctors again i think this is going to be your responsibility and you can engage these other doctors and and but this is something where you can really make a big difference on the outcome our best drug our anchor drug um is being handcuffed by the patients habits so uh, a big study was published uh, at the end of the last week. That's the Tycho SPA. That's a tight control in spondylarthritis trial. This is 160 patients with axial disease, axial spondyloarthritis. Uh, relatively early disease, less than four years. They were either randomized to receive usual care by the rheumatologist every three months or monthly uh, assessments and a treat-to-target regimen. Um, and the outcome here was one year, 48 weeks. Oddly, they chose to have a functional outcome, and that's kind of the big deal in this particular study. You know, other treat-to-target studies that you're aware of, Tychora and several others, um, use a disease activity measure as the goal. Achieving the goal um, was a, uh, usually a dash 28. In this study, they didn't choose a goal like an ASAS-40, ASAS-20 response or a BASDAI response. They chose the consequences of that disease activity. They chose the um, ASAS health uh, index, which is a functional outcome. So it's the ASAS high being greater than 30%. And guess what? At the end of 48 weeks, the treat-to-target group was numerically better, 47% versus the usual care, 36%. But that was not significant. So they missed. So treat the target didn't work. Well, it looked like it might have worked. Wait a second. It did work if you look at the other outcomes, the activity outcomes. ASAS 40, 52% versus 35%, highly significant. Other things that were highly significant was ASAS LDA, ASAS 20, Basdi 50. There were some that were not significant. That include MD Global, CRP, BASFI, uh, and other scores I know nothing about, but they're in there anyway. So does tight control, is, is tight control the goal in axial spinal arthritis? Heck yes, and it does work, depends on how you measure it. We're going to end with a study of a CD20-targeted therapy, obentuzumat, in proliferative lupus nephritis. As you know, there have been other B-cell-targeted therapies that have failed in lupus, um, often without lupus in general and not lupus nephritis. In this particular study, 125 patients with lupus nephritis, that was mostly class three and four disease. Some might have had class five, but it's mostly class three and four disease proven by biopsy. These patients were on a background of mycophenolate and steroids, and they're randomized to receive uh, either placebo or obituzumab on day one, two, 24, and 26, and they're followed for two years. The primary endpoint was the complete renal response at week 52. At week 52, there was a numeric improvement on obentuzumab, 35 versus 23%, not significant. However, if you follow them out to 104, it was significant at 41% versus 23%. So, uh, it also improved uh, proteinuria and GFR um, uh, numbers and serologies with lowering of double-stranded DNA and C3 and C4 levels normalized. So... It looks like this might be the next big thing in lupus. Um, We'll probably see more studies on this at the upcoming meetings. That's it for this week on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this. Go to the website to check out these citations and more. Be sure to follow us during ACR week. We've got a tremendous amount of work being done to uh, give you the best coverage possible. You'll be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. Listen up. While there is great hope that an understanding of biomarkers will benefit rheumatoid arthritis patient management, there are but a few biomarkers shown to be both diagnostic and prognostic. Researchers have suggested that RA patients who test positive for specific autoantibodies may express higher disease activity, which could impact treatment strategies, but most practitioners generally use these results only for diagnostic purposes. Bristol-Myers Squibb is investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population, patients who tested positive for these antibodies, which together are associated with higher disease activity. Rheumatologists may want to consider these biomarker-driven results when considering treatment options. To learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.